0: Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsuefalls.org. I said last time, as we look at these closing words in the book of Romans, what we're trying to do is understand the, you might think of it as like the, the big picture the pattern of concerns that Paul is showing as he signs off in this letter. He's telling the church at Rome, and he's telling us as well, where our focus should be, where the mission of the church should be focused. The uh, focus we saw last time, and arguably the most important focus, is a focus on those who have never heard. And this morning, we're going to see a second priority in Paul's ministry, a very important priority in his ministry, a focus on those who need our help. So hear the word of the Lord. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you, once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings." When, therefore, I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. Father, we ask for the fullness of the blessing of Christ as well. As we look to your word and look to be instructed by it, we pray that you might illuminate these words by the power of your Spirit. Amen. So Paul now really is just doing housekeeping. He's just keeping the Romans up to date on what's going on in the other churches, what projects are being worked on, particularly this this contribution that he's been working on for the poor in Jerusalem. And again, as I said last time, it's easy when we read over this stuff to kind of hit fast forward and think, all right, he's just checking off the boxes, keeping people up to date. But in these words, there is actually a pretty profound lesson and one that I think is challenging to the way that we think about the relationship between the spiritual and the material. And so if you look at Paul's words, Paul is at a moment in his ministry where what he can do where he is now is basically at an end. Remember, he wants to bring the gospel to those who have not heard. He's currently in Macedonia in Achaia, and he says, I'm kind of running out of room to, to work here because the gospel is spreading, because churches are being founded here, and so it's time to move on. It's time to keep seeking out those who have never heard. And interestingly, I, I talked about this last time where I said, you know, Rome is kind of the the, the center of the Roman world, but it's also like the end of the world when you're thinking in terms of Jerusalem, well, I think I sold Paul's ambition a little bit short because it's not Paul's hope to eventually make it to Rome. Paul's just hoping to stop in at Rome on his way to the real ends of the earth, to Spain, to what we call now like Gibraltar, like the Pillars of Hercules, where in the ancient world they kind of imagined there's nothing beyond here. That's his goal to get to Spain. And he's just going to stop in Rome Rome on the way. But he's got a little errand he has to run first. So remember your geography. Jerusalem is, is all the way down here. And we did kind of a half circle to get where Paul is now, up through like Antioch and through modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor, across into Europe, into Macedonia and Achaea, Greece, the Balkans, that area. And he hasn't yet jumped over to Rome. But now... Like standing on one side of the Adriatic with Italy on the other, he's not going forward, he's going back. He's going all the way back to Jerusalem because he's got some unfinished business. Because there's a collection that he's been taking up. He started this in Galatia and Asia Minor, and he's been continuing it in in Macedonia and Achaia, and now it's time to make this delivery, so he's got to go and do that. As he talks about it, he says... These Gentile believers, these churches in Achaia and Macedonia, they were actually very willing to participate in this collection. And he's being very generous here because, as we'll see in a moment, when you look at letters addressed to them, they were kind of willing to participate, and they were also kind of not. And Paul had to give a little bit of a nudge here and there to make it work. But Paul says not only were they willing, but they were also obligated. But they had a responsibility to contribute to the poor in Jerusalem. We'll talk a little bit about the implications of that in a moment. But first, see that once he has done this work, once he's delivered the money, then he intends to resume his missionary travels. And when he does, he plans to go to Rome, and he says they're going to help sort of launch him on his way To Spain. So he's letting the Romans know, don't worry, it's not just the Greeks and and the people of Asia Minor that I've asked for uh, collections. I'm also going to be coming to you and looking for support as well. So that's housekeeping. But in the course of this, in verse 27, Paul says something really fascinating. He says, For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them and material blessings. So if the Gentiles have come to share in spiritual blessings that belong to the Jews, then those Gentiles have an obligation to meet the material needs of the Jews. That's what he's saying, and that's what we're going to spend some time thinking about. But before we do, um, let me tell you a little bit about this collection and what was going on there. So there's a few points in Scripture where we hear about this work that was going on in Galatians, if you look in Galatians two, as Paul is describing the uh, kind of the course of his ministry, you know he had an unusual calling he wasn't one of the original apostles. Christ called him in a very dramatic way, but for a long time, his ministry operated kind of outside the the, the orbit of the twelve. And at a certain point, they had to come together. And Paul goes to Jerusalem, and they're kind of talking together over one another. In Acts 15, there's a council held, the first council of the church in Jerusalem. And the question is, for Gentile Christians, how Jewish do they have to be? If somebody becomes a Christian, does that mean they also have to convert to Judaism? Do they need to be circumcised? Do they need to start observing the dietary laws? Things like that. And as the apostle to the Gentiles, obviously, Paul has a big stake in this, so he's part of that meeting. And the way he describes it in Galatians 2 is that the leaders, the pillars of the church resolve that, no, when you become a Christian, you don't have to follow all of these Old Testament customs, that that's no longer necessary. But he says in Galatians 2, verse 10, they did ask something of him. It says only they asked us to remember the poor the very thing i was eager to do so it turns out in his letter to the galatians he mentions that in jerusalem they've asked him to be especially mindful of the poor the church in jerusalem was uh, afflicted by poverty it was subject to great persecution right this was a church of outsiders a church that that materially speaking had a really tenuous existence and so they're asking Paul to remember and to give aid to this struggling group of believers. And Paul did that when he made it to Achaia, to Corinth, right? He starts this, uh, this collection or resumes this collection that he began in Galatia. You'll find this in 1 Corinthians 16, Right at the beginning of the chapter, he says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. And then he explains the method, how to go about this. And it'll sound really familiar to you. It'll sound like the way we do these things in church now. On the first day of every week, which is what today is, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should also go or go also, they will accompany me. So every week you're going to set something aside, and then when I come again, we'll take that to Jerusalem. That's how that's going to go. We're going to kind of every week make an allowance. We're going to give an offering for the poor of Jerusalem And then once a certain time has passed, we'll combine it all together and we'll bring it to them. So he says this in Achaia. And then when he goes to Macedonia, he kind of uses the fact that they're doing this in Achaia to leverage giving in Macedonia. So in 2 Corinthians 9, he says... Now it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints, for I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year. And your zeal has stirred up most of them. Most. So you see what he's doing there. He's in Macedonia saying, well, look, the churches in Achaia, they're ready to go. They've been ready for a year. We're just waiting on you. And then he says in verse 3, but I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter so that you may be ready as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated, say nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead of you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an extraction." So perhaps for the first time in a long history of ministers who are to go after, Paul is encouraging people to be part of something and at the same time telling them, hey, your fellow believers, they're part of it, and then really hoping that that is still the case and that he hasn't turned his back and the giving has stopped where he's been. So you can understand it's a little precarious, this giving, then as now. But there's a reason why Paul persists in it, and it's that Christ's people are called to focus on those who need our help. There's a value to this collection that Paul recognizes. The Gentiles have benefited from the covenant of grace, and that was passed down through the Jews. That is an ethnic inheritance that has now been thrown open. And all of these churches that he's speaking to have benefited spiritually from that inheritance. So Paul says they are responsible to help the Jews in their need. In other words, to give a material blessing in return for the spiritual blessing that they've received. And if you think about the significance of this collection, it's actually kind of huge because as Paul has been saying throughout the book of Romans, what Christ is doing is he is bringing together into one great diversity. Jews and Gentiles, there is such a wall between them that crossing it is unimaginable. And yet, Christ is bringing Jew and Gentile together into unity. He is making them into one body, into one family. And what do families do? They carry one another's burdens. When one member of the family is in need, the other members of the family rally round to help them. If the family of Christ in Jerusalem is in need and the family of Christ in Achaia and Macedonia won't help what does that say about the unity of the church so it's imperative it's imperative that they come together as one family and meet the need right the poverty of Jerusalem has now become the problem of the Greeks because they are united together and understand there's evidence elsewhere in the New Testament that, that this coming together didn't always work very well, as you can imagine. There were concerns that Jewish widows are treated better than Gentile widows in the church. It, it, it's not equitable. It's not the way it ought to be. You could imagine easily how resentments could have been you know, stoked as a result of this. And, and Gentile believers saying, you know what? They haven't been very hospitable to us. Why should we open our pockets for them? If God has decided to bring poverty on the the believers of Jerusalem, maybe they deserve poverty. What does that have to do with us? You could easily imagine that kind of a spirit. And maybe there was such a spirit. But you see the Apostle Paul constantly pushing back and, and fighting against it and saying, no, this is not the way to think. We are one. We must act as one. This was a major undertaking. It didn't come easily. You can see all the planning that was involved, all the strategy. It required a lot of sacrifice to make this collection. And it put the leaders of the church in an awkward position. Throughout Paul's letters, he's constantly having to assure people, look, I'm not scamming you. Look, I'm not skimming off the top. I'm not being dishonest here. He has to vouch for himself again and again because... They said earlier, when you tell people they're sinners, that's one thing. But when you ask for their money, that's something else. And Paul was making a big ask, and a lot of people who did not want to go along with this found all sorts of reasons to doubt his sincerity. It would have been a lot easier for him not to talk about that stuff. If he wanted the gospel to spread, he could have just focused on that spiritual message and and forgotten about the poor in Jerusalem who none of these people would ever see. So it must have been important to do this. Otherwise, why would he have gone through so much difficulty? This, in other words, was part of their Christian faith. Paul wasn't adding the the need to give to the gospel. It was part of the gospel that Paul was preaching. He would not have pushed this so tenaciously if it wasn't necessary to the message of the gospel that he was preaching. Christ's people are called to focus on those who need our help. We are accustomed to thinking that there is a, a huge, like wall of separation, a wall of separation between the spiritual and the material. The spiritual transcends the material. The spiritual is otherworldly. The material is, is this worldly. The material corrupts the spiritual. You know, don't talk about money when we're talking about spiritual things. Like, keep it focused on the higher things. Don't don't corrupt it in that way. But as you can see from Paul, this this way of dividing things up, it doesn't sit well with the Bible's teaching. But it does reflect a profound and hidden influence of, of the worldview of Hellenism that has shaped us in ways that we're not really conscious of. We, even as Christians, like trained by Scripture, carry deep within us the, these ideas of a separation between the spiritual and the material that, that's very Greek. And the Greek Christians certainly would have in, been influenced by this understanding. And there's a reason why when, when spiritual ministers were suddenly asking for material things, they started to wonder what was going on. Paul had to insist as a result on his financial independence. He was a tent maker, literally, in order to avoid this kind of criticism so as not to trigger these cultural biases so that they would stand in the way of the mission of the church. He didn't give up on the collection. He gave up on a livelihood that he had a right to so that they would participate fully in this gospel call to care for the needs of those who need help. Today, we do something similar. We're constantly making these accommodations. The church doesn't want your money. The church doesn't need your money. But there is a basket in the back for tithes and offerings because we're trying to strike that balance. But the reality is, as Paul says here, there's a connection between the spiritual and the material. We want material Blessings in return for spiritual faithfulness. Most of our prayers hinge around that connection. right? I've been faithful to you, Lord. Now please help me with these bills. Get me a better job. You know, come through for me in these material ways. That part we understand. But if we understand that, we must accept that spiritual blessings create material obligations. That spiritual blessings create responsibilities, obligations in the physical and the material world, that the gospel isn't just otherworldly, that there's a real-world call. Spiritual blessings create material obligations. So quickly here, let's just do a crash course in material needs in the way the Bible sees these things. If you look in Luke chapter 12, famous passage where Jesus says to seek first the kingdom of God, What's the context in which he says that? Well, the context is material need. He says, do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Now, the verse that we sing is, seek ye first the kingdom of God. But to me, the most comforting words in that passage are, your Father knows that you need them. Because sometimes we're tempted to forget that and think maybe God has lost sight of those needs. Jesus says no. John, the apostle in his epistles, he's a great advocate for love. He says God's love should prompt us to meet the needs of our brothers and sisters in Christ. He says in 1 John three sixteen through 18 By this we know love. considers the idea that you could possess these material blessings and not use them for the aid of, of your brothers and sisters in need. And he says about that, like, how could God's love abide in such a person? It's inconceivable to him that the love of God could abide in you and that it wouldn't lead to focusing on the needs of those who need our help. Inconceivable to him. And sometimes we tell ourselves, look, people just need the gospel. You now there's all sorts of poverty, all sorts of problems. You can't fix the world. The world is sinful. People just need the gospel. The Apostle James would say, you have no idea what you're talking about. In James chapter 2, he says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So, God created the material world. He gave us the physical needs, the the strictures that we operate with. He knows what those needs are, that should be a comfort to us. God hasn't forgotten our hunger. He hasn't forgotten our need. But God uses his people to meet the needs of others. God works through us in order to meet those needs. His love inside us prompts us to serve him by serving those who are made in His image. That's the gospel connection. You're not loving God. You're not following Christ if that love doesn't animate you to seek out and to focus on those in need. And as much as we want to say they just need the gospel, the fact is material things and spiritual things go together. If you cut the material blessings out of the gospel It is no longer the full gospel. In order for it to be the gospel that was proclaimed by the apostles and by Christ himself, these things go together. Yes, focus on those who have never heard. But at the same time, focus on those who need our help. Not either or, but both together organically. So here's the charge. You have received spiritual blessings, and as a result, you have material obligations. It's as simple as that, the words of Paul. Just like the Romans, just like the Corinthians, just like the Galatians, just like all of those ancient churches, we have received spiritual blessings through Christ. And as a result, we have material obligations towards those Who are in need. We have an obligation, a duty, a responsibility that Paul emphasizes to support the church and its work through our tithes and our offerings, as we were talking about earlier. Paul lets the Romans know I'm going to come and I'm going to stay, and when I go to Spain, you're going to help me do it. And he doesn't just mean prayer, although he does mean prayer, he means they're going to help him get there financially. They're going to use their material blessings to advance the spiritual blessings of the gospel. This is one of the ways God works. But also, there's an obligation to give material aid to those in need, especially, but not exclusively, the saints. That we shouldn't be content to have plenty when Christ's people around us do not, are in need that we ought to be quick to meet those needs. Paul expected the Greek churches to relieve the poverty of the Jerusalem poor as different as they had been before the gospel came. Now they're one family, and they've got to take care of each other. So, you've received spiritual blessings. You have material obligations to meet, and that's gospel. But if you have material needs, then the other side of this coin is, you need to understand that we have an obligation to you. For those of you who have been blessed, you have an obligation to use those gifts to meet the needs of others. To those of you who are in need, there's no shame in it. There's no reason to conceal that need because we as your family have an obligation to you. One of the ways we serve him is by serving you. So to those in need, I want to say, receiving this help emphasizes that we are one. And today, if you need help, ask for it. Ask for it. There's no shame in it, because today, it's you who needs the help. Tomorrow, it'll be you who's giving it. This is the way that God has ordained for his people to support one another as a family. And it doesn't stop here. It doesn't stop in this room. It doesn't stop with this congregation. There are other ministries in need, other people. We're surrounded in a city full of need. And rather than, than counting the costs and asking ourselves, how much good can we afford to do? Instead, we should commit ourselves to do all the good that God will do through us and trust him to take care of the rest. And as I said, there's a strange division in our churches between the spiritual and the material, but there are a lot of strange divisions within the churches, if you think about it. And one of the things we talk about here at Grace a lot is this interesting thing where if you look at church history, especially modern church history, kind of strange. It seems like conservative churches have preserved Christian orthodoxy, Christian theology, if you want to find churches that still talk about God the way that the church has always talked about and still believe those words, you go to conservative churches. But if you want to define Christian worship preserved in a way that would be recognizable to the Christians of the past, you've got to go to mainline churches. Got to go to liturgical churches to find worship that our ancestors, if they could come forward in a time machine, would actually recognize as worship, because I fear that if the apostles could visit us today and attend most of our worship services, they wouldn't realize that's what it was. They might leave without ever understanding, oh, that was church. Crazy. I had no idea. One of the things we've tried to do at Grace is bring those things back together, Christian orthodoxy and Christian liturgy, Christian worship and Christian truth back together because they're meant to be together. They're not meant to be like carried around in pieces by by different people, but but together for the body of Christ, and that's something we have attempted to do here. There's a similar separation in the churches though over this question of material need. It has to do with the social gospel Those mainline churches, as they were kind of reimagining what Christian orthodoxy looked like, put a big focus on good works, on social activism as a substitute for the the spiritual blessings that were being uh, traded away. As a result of that, conservatives reacted by by basically letting the, the liberals have that stuff so that they could just focus on the gospel. As a result... It's changing a little bit now, but it used to be the case that you'd go to conservative churches and you would just hear gospel, gospel, gospel. People just need to believe. They just need to be converted. You'd go to mainline churches and you would hear, help, help, help. We need to help people. We need to do social good. We need to make the world a better place. Again, as if these things were severable, but they're not. The apostle Paul makes it clear that they go together. that The spiritual and the material are one in the body of Christ. So the challenge for us if we're going to to embrace Christian orthodoxy and Christian worship is to go beyond that and embrace our spiritual obligations but also our material ones and not let this be a church where we proclaim a gospel that has no effect on the material needs of the people around us but rather proclaim a gospel that changes the spiritual and the material that focuses on those who need our help. If you think about the words of James and the words of John and the words of Paul, it is clear the direction that these apostles point us in. They point us in the direction that Christ himself, with his healing ministry, came to point. It is that we must focus on those who need our help. We are surrounded by them, and we cannot afford to be indifferent to them.